If I were to ask you, what is the most important concept throughout Scripture, the biggest idea, the thing the Bible's trying to say, if you kind of summed it up in one thought, if I were to ask you that question, what is the point of Scripture, what would you say? Now, I want you to think on that. And while you think on it, I want to tell you a little story. So I grew up in Mississippi, northeast Mississippi, out in the country, um, on about 30 acres of land where there were more cows than people, right? And that was my, that was my reality. I didn't live near people, right? Because, like, cows. So I didn't really live near people, um, but we had television, and I really got into things I saw on television, okay? And, and I was really, I really loved sports. And so the two sports as a child I got into uh, were basketball and, and baseball, okay? And so I would, every Saturday, I would watch uh, NBA Inside Stuff. Anybody else watch this growing up, NBA Inside Stuff? Okay, for those of you who are 35 and younger, you just missed out. I'm sorry. This was your weekly dose of education on basketball. Um, and so, uh, actually, you don't miss out because, like, you're in the 21st century. So, um, but, like, I would watch that, and then I would run out to this little wood backboard, my grandfather, a, a, a goal and backboard he built, and, like, on dirt, uneven ground with, like, hills and whatnot, I would practice my moves, right? I'd want to be like Magic or Jordan or whoever else. And then it just kind of hit me over time, like, I didn't see too many Iranians playing basketball, all right? And so I had to kind of make a decision on the fly, like, we're going to go to baseball now. And so I started, like, really getting into baseball. And so then I would go out to this large fishing pond we had, about a two or three acre fishing pond, and then I would, like, take rocks, throw them up, and I would practice different batting stances, right, of my favorite baseball players. You're looking at me like I'm an alien. You did this too, and if you did not, you're lying, all right, or you missed out. All right, so this is what I did, and um, I loved emulating my favorite athletes. That's what I wanted to do. Now, here's the thing. Eventually, I couldn't go out to the pond at 30 years old and start throwing up rocks and hitting them to emulate my favorite base baseball players. Um, so as I got older and I got into different things, like like wanting to be a pastor in theology, I kind of switched. And so instead of having favorite baseball players, I had favorite like theologians, all right? This is where it gets nerdy and you cannot relate, all right? So I had favorite like theologians and, and pastors and instead of baseball cards, we had books. And instead of stats, they had references on the back of the book. Like this is what I got into as I, as I got older. And a few weeks ago, I got to meet one of my favorite theologians ever, Okay, uh, uh, me and a couple of the pastors here, we went to Atlanta to a pastor's conference and got to meet a guy by the name of Scott McKnight. And, and uh, really? Wow, okay, awesome. <laughs> and so I got to meet Scott and I was like fan boying out, like I was geeking out getting to meet Scott McKnight. I got to sit across the table from him and talk to him for a minute. Um, and then after his session, I went up to him, I waited in line, right? And I went up to him, and I was like, I just need to run by you what I think the Bible's about. And he goes, okay. <laughs> you know, as you do when you talk to a person. And, um, and I said, and I started just kind of running through it. I said, here's what I think the Bible's about. I think the Bible is about God's presence with his people 
in a certain place. And that throughout scripture, God's trying to communicate that and that eventually that metaphor is shown through a temple. And he looked at me and he goes, I like it. And you may be right. And I thought, oh my God, I'm in heaven. I can't believe I got my favorite theologian to be like, I affirm you, I baptize you with rightness, Robin. Good job. Like, I was just, I was just living it up. And I remember thinking like, oh man, Scott McKnight just like got behind something I was thinking through. Now, here's the thing about it. I didn't think that up, but I didn't tell him that. All right. Like I got it from some books, but he didn't read those people. All that to say, I found myself really thinking through that. Like, what is the point of Scripture? What's it trying to communicate to us? And this morning, I think this is what Paul's trying to get around to, that there's this really big idea that if we let ourselves, like, jump into it, it has the chance to really shape, like, our ethos and how we go about living in this world with a new sense of purpose. And I think it's found here in Ephesians 2. Now, here's the thing, though. We read this at first, and we're like, ah, not really sure what's happening here. So let's just try to dive into it, and then we're going to go exploring throughout the whole Bible, okay? And then we'll be done in two hours. So let's just jump in here. So Paul is writing to a church that is multi-ethnic and multicultural. He's writing to a church in Asia Minor, several churches he was writing to this letter, and you had people with different understandings religiously, but then there were still lots of things they kind of had in common. He was writing to people who had different cultural takes, and he's saying here in the book of Ephesians that through Jesus, any divide you had is now broken down. You thought you were separate, but you are now together, and you are now one through the work of Christ on the cross. And so he's trying to lay out this concept to, to these people. And he's just thinking like, you know what? I'm using a bunch of words. I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about his death. I'm talking about a cross. I need to go to like a metaphor because where words can never really be enough, right? And just lots of didactic concepts, metaphors, like we've been doing with this parable series, which we're taking a break from today, but like we've been doing with this parable series at Christ City Church, like these visuals help explain more. That's kind of what's happening here. And notice here, Paul goes into talking about like building language. So look at verse 20. It says, built on the foundation, the foundation of the apostles, of the prophets, of their teachings, like this foundation's being laid. And he's saying, and Jesus is the cornerstone. So Jesus is the impetus, right, of where even these others are getting their cues from. But this is the foundation. So imagine here, it's like if you want to build something, if you want to build a beautiful church, you have to lay the foundation first. And then you have to make sure it's solid. And then the next language he goes into, if you look at verse 21, join together. Um. The concept in that in the Greek is to frame something. It actually, it, it would sound weird if you said it this way, but it, it actually literally means like fitly framed. It's like the framework has to start going. Like you have to start putting up the framework around. So he's like, you have a foundation, and then you start building a framework on top of, of that foundation. And then he goes on to say, 
that grows into, that grows, like it's got this progressive movement, uh, this idea of growing, like it's becoming bigger and bigger. There's more stuff added to it. Let's put some nice windows in here, right? Let's put some beautiful pews in here. Let's get the stage just right. Like it's kind of just being built into something bigger and bigger. And he says, into a holy temple. And at first you could kind of go like, okay, so like all of God's people with Jesus being the cornerstone are being built in this holy temple. So what exactly does that mean though? And then in verse 22, he says, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You're being built together into a dwelling place, a meeting grounds. Now, we as 21st century people can kind of read that and go, okay, whatever. We don't, I don't really think in terms of temples. That sounds kind of weird and archaic. But you have to understand, we're reading about ancient Near Eastern people living in a world that had a certain context to it. And this context, like this idea of temple and dwelling place for God would have been radical. So we have to kind of do like a deep dive into what this really would have been saying to God's people in Ephesus at this time. So let's go on a little journey. And I want us to start going back to the Old Testament. Now we're going to put some passages on the screen for you, or you're welcome to turn there in your Bibles. So the first place we're going to go is kind of where it all began. We have a story of a guy named Abraham who has a son named Isaac who has two sons named Esau and Jacob. And Esau and Jacob, uh, Esau's the older, Jacob's the younger. And the older is deserved of a blessing, which means kind of like the inheritance and um, the, the reference on the resume, all the 401k of the father. And Jacob's like, I don't want to miss out on that. So like, I'm going to like put some, 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 uh, some sheep, uh, uh, what, what do sheep wear? Wool, thank you. Yeah, I'm going to put some wool on my arms, as you do, um, and then I'm going to go to my blind dad and get him to bless me. It's a very common thing we still do today, okay? So he goes to his dad, and he gets his dad to give him the blessing, and then Esau finds out, all right? And so then Jacob runs, because he's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. He has a very, he has very low character. Jacob's not the kind of guy that you want to be like, let me be friends with that dude. You may have a good time together on a Friday night, but you'll wake up Saturday with all your money gone. Like Jacob's that kind of guy, all right? So then Jacob's running, and he's running. He gets tired. And we get to chapter 28, verse 10. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Even earlier when Jacob, when Jamin read the 
call to worship, there was a verse after this that Jacob goes, how awesome is this place, the gateway to heaven? Now, what is going on here? Growing up, I just thought like, like a wood ladder just kind of popped down from the sky, and that was that. But that wasn't that. That's not what's happening here. There wasn't like these wood ladders. They probably had wood ladders, but this isn't what's happening here. What Jacob is envisioning isn't simply just a ladder. It's something that the ancients called a ziggurat. This is a fun word, so I want you to say it with me. Everybody say ziggurat. Good job, all right? So ziggurats were like temples. They were these ancient places where people believed if they could build it high enough into the sky, they could coerce and convince their gods to come down and meet them. Now, these ziggurats were all over. You would find them in Mesopotamia. You'd even find them, though, in Central and South America. It was just a concept that ancient people had. It was built into them to know that they wanted to connect somehow to something bigger than themselves. And they believed that they could create the right kind of space, heaven and earth, the divine and humane could come crashing into each other and maybe even from time to time kiss one another on the cheek. Like maybe, maybe they could find what they were looking for in life if they could just convince the gods to come be with them. Matter of fact, um, even when you read Genesis 1 through 11, this primeval history, stories of how the world worked, you find in chapter 11 something famously called the Tower of Babel. And it's a story of people trying not just to meet the gods, but to think that they could be God by building the tallest ziggurat in the world to reach heaven and therefore prove that they don't need God. These ideas of ziggurats were all over the world. They were baked into the culture at the time. And so Jacob is dreaming this, this idea of stairs that go up and down this ziggurat. And he's thinking, my goodness, what an amazing thing this could be. See, God is telling Jacob, your people, your offspring will be the meeting place of me in this world. People are going to bump into me through you and your people. What a dream. What an honor that the creator of the world would come and say, through your offspring, this is what's going to happen. Now, here's the deal, though. That wasn't really actualized until about 400 plus years later. Because soon after this, um, Jacob's family goes, after a few generations, they go into slavery in Egypt. And so for hundreds of years, God people, God's people are in slavery. And when they're finally busted out of slavery, set free, they go out into the wilderness led by Moses. And Moses gets instructions from God to start setting up something called tabernacle. A tabernacle was a remote temple, a remote almost ziggurat of sorts. You'd set it all up, you'd put the Holy of Holies in the center, and that's where heaven and earth came crashing into each other. If you wanted to bump into God, that's where you'd go. Now, the two main things ancients believed they could get from these meeting places of heaven and earth, these ziggurats, these temples, they could find one mercy, like mercy. I have done wrong. I need to sacrifice a bunch of things so that I'm not sacrificed. And as primitive as you may think that is, that was, again, baked into the culture. They knew that they were often wrong. 
And they didn't know how to reconcile that except through somehow some kind of sacrifice. Because surely the gods do not want to come be with me unless I sacrifice. And so this was this idea of mercy. But then it wasn't just mercy you would find at ziggurats or at temples. It's also significance or purpose. Because you would go there to go like, I am this small. Again, Jamin said earlier, we're not big, but we're a big deal to God. This is why you'd come to temple. I know I'm not big. I keep trying to be big in the world all the time, but it doesn't work out very well. But I'm just wondering, am I a big deal to somebody bigger than me? Like, don't you ever wonder that? Am I just a big deal to somebody else? Well, you would come to ziggurats or temples to have those questions answered. And so God's people were traveling through the wilderness, had this remote temple, and then eventually Solomon shows up, the son of David. And Solomon builds this beautiful, ornate, lavished in gold and gems, this temple. The fire of God comes down, consumes it, and God is with his people forever. No more remote dwelling. He is there with them. And this became the epicenter for every Jewish man, woman, and child. God's presence with his people in this place. And it was carried forth for them for hundreds and hundreds of years until about 2,000 years later, this rabbi, no name, from the backwoods of Galilee shows up and he starts saying things. And John captures some of these things he's saying. If you ever want to read the weirdness of Jesus, just read the Gospel of John. All right, just, just read it. And you're like, that's strange. Like, I don't think I talk to people that way. So let's just see a, a situation where Jesus is talking to somebody kind of strangely. John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What a backhanded, like, that's not even backhanded. That's just a slap, right? Like, can really, like, can anything, like somebody says to me, oh, you're from Mississippi? Really? From Mississippi? And I'm like, yeah, what does that mean? Oh, nothing. We just look down on you a lot. That's all. And I'm like, oh, thanks. Okay. So, like, can anything good come out of, of Nazareth, this little kind of backwoods area? And, uh, and then Philip's like, just come and see, bro. Like, I don't know how to explain it all to you. You just need to show up and meet this guy because he's kind of interesting. So then we have this interaction. Jesus sees Nathaniel coming. He goes, behold, a man who has no deceit. Nathaniel's like, me? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. I guess I am a, a man without deceit, and, and I'm not like any of my other relatives. And, and he goes, but how did you know me? And Jesus is saying, well, you see, before you even came here, I saw you under the fig tree. And now, now Nathaniel's like, okay, this is weird. Like, you're seeing me when I'm not seeing you. That's called, like, spying, or I don't know what else, but that's kind of weird. But Nathaniel's thinking, well, maybe this is, like, really a prophet. And he actually starts thinking about it, and he becomes amazed. And then 
Jesus says to Nathaniel, it's really interesting. He goes, if you thought that was awesome and that was really cool, like little kind of party trick I pulled out, check this out. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Does that sound familiar? Did we just happen to see that somewhere else in the Bible? I think we did. Jesus is pulling straight from Genesis 28. The thing that was meant to be just this construct and structure, Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh, you don't need that anymore. Let's just kind of push those ziggurats to the side. Let's push those temples to the side. Now you got me. You're going to see angels descending and ascending on me. I am going to be the meeting grounds of heaven and earth. I think N.T. Wright captured it well when he said, Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. The place where and the means by which people come and find themselves renewed and restored as the people of the one God. The place where power is redefined, turned upside down, or perhaps the right way up. Jesus is the meeting ground of the divine and the humane. He's the place where people now can come and find mercy and significance purpose. Now, if I were to stop there, you would go, great, I agree with that. That's kind of why I came to church. But then Jesus, of course, always takes it further. Because if we had to go further in John, which we will, John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus has kind of given his farewell speech to his best friends, his followers. And here's what he says to them. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. He is saying, you as my followers, you all, y'all in the South, you will do greater things than I did. Now, just think about that for a second. Have you ever thought that you could do greater things than Jesus? Thank you. If you said yes, we have a problem, okay? No, you, like, no, are you, did you heal somebody on the way to church? No. Did somebody start seeing because you're like at Starbucks and like, oh, here, bam, let me hit you on the side of the head. Okay, now you can go. No. Did you turn like, like water into coffee? Well, you could turn water into coffee. Did you turn coffee into wine? I don't think so. I actually didn't plan that. I just didn't realize what I was saying. No, you didn't. And yet, Jesus believes that you, that me, that us, that we can do greater things than he did. And what are those things he did? If we were to sum it up, he was bringing God's presence to people by being a place. He was bringing God's presence to people by being a place a meeting ground, a a, a little marked off part in the world where people get to bump into the divine in the midst of their humanity. A place where in their profaneness, they could like find something holy and great if they could just bump into it. 
Now let's take it all back to what Paul is wanting to say. I think that this is what Paul wants to tap into. I think this is the big idea throughout Scripture. We find it in Genesis all the way to the New Testament, even in Revelation. God's people in a certain place and him bringing his presence. And Paul is saying, you and me, us together, we are the meeting grounds of heaven and earth. People now can like find mercy and significance by bumping into us. Not because we're so great, but simply because God is going, I want to use you. This is your purpose. This is why you exist. You don't exist to go kill it in the business world. You don't exist to get like your name known through your art and craft. You exist to be a meeting ground for heaven and earth if you believe that Jesus is Lord. So it means things like you and I are the best chance of people ever have bumping into God. This is what Paul believed. No longer do we need the ziggurats and the temples. It's just us together. Now, what does this mean for us? Today's a special day. Two churches worshiping as one. The unity within that. In a city that can be so many times historically divided by race or doctrine or mission or whatever it may be. But two churches coming together to say, we want to worship as one. One church is 95 years old. Another will just turn eight years old this year. Isn't that crazy? This church here, Central Christian Church, was built in 1923. You can't even think of somebody you knew probably that was from 1923, that even somebody that knew somebody that knew. Like that is a long time ago, five generations. Matter of fact, this sanctuary wasn't built until World War II, World War II. The original sanctuary is behind us in a place called Walker Hall. And in Walker Hall is where a group of people wanting to be faithful to the Lord, to be a meeting grounds of heaven and earth, started gathering together and dreaming. And slowly but surely, all that's behind us started being built up. And then the vision was, we're growing, we need to bring it into a, a, a larger space. And so here you have this beautiful space. It's, it's modeled, actually, after uh, the bottom of a ship called the nave. Think about that. Like This beautiful sanctuary is modeled after something that's meant to be able to go into the wildness of the world, but also like keep upright, to be a safe place for people to come. Now, we have a lot of differences as churches, age, demographic, um, maybe even particular vision statements or mission statements. But um, we still have a lot of in common because both churches have been through ups and downs. Both churches have been through their parts of shame and their own glory. And both churches have had to keep relying on God to sustain them throughout. Studies show that humans are 99% the same. The person beside you, you are 99% the same. The only thing that separates you is 1%, they say. Isn't that crazy? That we have way more in common than we do apart. 
that there's more for us to rally around as one than there is for us to separate over and being different. That whether it's how you worship or how you preach or how you do community or how you do service, whatever it may be, like, yeah, those could be looking different, but it's all the same. And what is the same? Pretty simple. To be a people in a place where people could come meet God. That's it. And it can happen in beautiful structures, but also can happen by people simply going, we want to be loving and caring towards one another. Because people are dying. They're begging for a better view and a better reality of what the world throws their way. They're begging for something that could be unified, that could be kind and loving, that sees more of how they're the same, they're different. But so many times in the church, right, by the big C church, we find that we need to really separate ourselves more and more. We need to be really holy, really separate. But then what do you do with all this stuff where God comes and meets a person who's a liar and deceiver and running away, and he goes, yeah, through you, I'm going to, like, bring my presence in this world. God loves using jacked up, needy people, especially when they realize they are in need of something more than what they can accomplish in life. And he starts coming and meeting those people, and then others see it, and they're like, there's something holy in the midst of the profane that's going on there, and I'm so attracted to it. You see, Paul is saying, Jesus is trying to get across to us, the Bible's pointing us towards that we're the gateway to heaven. I know you don't really, maybe that's your new, new nickname. What are you, gateway to heaven? Wow, really? Like, I know that's kind of big, don't use that on Facebook. But like, that's a big thing. But that's what the Bible's trying to tell us. And I get it. You don't always feel that way. Because like, you know what's gone on in your life the past week. You, you know how often you get it wrong than get it right. But what if God's wanting to use all of that? What if he's wanting to use all those pieces of you, if you're willing to be honest with it, to like let you be a part of something bigger? And maybe the hard things are happening in your life, if you do call Jesus your Lord, maybe the hard things happening in your life are trying to push you and build you up into something that he can like have resonance in and people can bump into him with. Well, I love this quote in your bulletin from C.S. Lewis. It said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abdominably and does not seem to make any sense, what on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. When we act as the church, the meeting grounds of heaven and earth, 
we give a chance for people interacting with us to truly say, like, surely the Lord was in this place, and I did not realize it. When you take seriously that you are a people that house God's presence in this place, people are going to come interact with you, and they'll find that they're lasting like the taste they have in their mouth is, I just bumped into something bigger than what I thought life could be about. How awesome is this? The gateway to heaven. This is us as Central Christian Church, as Christ City Church. Together, even in our separate worship times, we are these meeting grounds. And even outside this beautiful, beautiful space, we are those meeting grounds. Hope you see that. I hope that somehow can inspire you to realize you are the place where people bump into God and find mercy and significance. So that means your life matters, your actions matter, your choices matter, your ethics matter, the way you treat others matter. Because now it's like super significant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of worship together in both song, sermon, and sacrament. And we thank you that we can find inspiration through your scripture, that we are our meeting grounds, that the big idea that the Bible is trying to throw our way is like you as an individual and you all corporately can be this place where people obtain mercy and they get to also have significance. So what I pray now as we go into a time of offering and communion, that we would recognize the beauty of that, the seriousness of that, the weightiness of that, but also the joy of that, that you would come to us in the midst of where we are and say, yeah, I want to use you, even you, the one who thinks that like you're not worthwhile. Yeah, I want to knock out a few more rooms, a few more drains, and I want to build you into a palace, a temple, a place where people can now meet me. Pray these things in your name.